Leadership Matters, a podcast hosted by me, Steve Parker, a series that brings a fresh perspective to leadership, motivation, and how to succeed by talking to a diverse range of CEOs, business managers, and world-class talent. We also offer some personal tips to help you in your career. Each episode aims to provide a snapshot into the life and philosophy of some of Taiwan and the world's most successful leaders, and to find out more about why leadership matters. We're very lucky today to have uh, Benjamin Lamberg in the studio. Benjamin has been leading Credit Agricole in Taiwan for a couple of years now. He's also been leading the French Chamber of Commerce. He's got an incredible history. He's worked in Hong Kong. He's worked throughout Asia. He's worked throughout Europe, mainly in the banking and finance area. And I can tell from the way he sent me his CV that uh, he's a very well-organized person. It's very focused. It's very kind of date and fact driven. And I'm looking forward to kind of delving a little bit deeper into that because the Benjamin I know and the, and the CV that I got, there's, there are some differences there. And I think it's this uh, dichotomy that is really interesting when you talk to leaders. Benjamin, welcome. Merci, Steve. Ah, of course, merci. Uh, so first, thank you very much. <laughs> what a privilege to be invited by the guru of leadership. Uh, for me, it's my first podcast. So I I feel like a millennial to be with you today, so that's great. Thank you so much. You're the leader of a huge organization. How do you go about kind of creating that? Because I know it's very important to you. I know it's very important to, to European companies in general. How do you go about creating this environment of learning? And how do you make it relevant to people? I think in Taiwan, people are very focused on hard skills, i.e. better at being technical on something. And here... I'm trying to tough on soft skills. That's one element. Two, it's key for an organization to be a living matter. We need to grow. We need to progress. And ultimately, we are what our staff is. I mean, it, it's a little bit kind of French syntax, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think it's a really nice point. You are the people, right? The people make an organization, if I can paraphrase what you're saying. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Absolutely. People matter. We tend to say, you know, that banking and finance in general is a people business. And I truly believe that. We are extremely regulated. We tend to be well-organized businesses. But ultimately, what makes a difference is a collection of people you get uh, around you. And for myself, I drew my motivation from our staff. I draw my energy from the energy I've got around me. I'm an energy vampire. <laughs> So I really need to have staff which are motivated. I need this level of energy at work. So I hope I'm contributing to this mix, you know, by giving and passing some of my energy. But it's a two-way. I also need the energy from the staff. This is a super good point because I think a lot of leadership conversations center around how you can give to your staff, how you can develop your staff, how you can motivate them, how you can give to them. There's not a lot talked about what the staff have to give you. But people don't talk about this concept that you've just talked about, which is um, your leadership actually reflects and bounces back from the energy of the room and the people in the organization. As an international leader, you've lived in a couple of different places. How do you go about building this? And I'm not going to go down this vampire line. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you go about building this rapport and this kind of uh, reciprocal energy that you get from them? How do you go about building those? teams and alignment. There is a first requirement, which is as a leader, in good or bad days, you need to lead, you need to have the energy and you need to have it in you. 
But indeed, it's nicer, you know, when, when you're in this kind of uh, to raise relationship with your staff. I think I found in Taiwan the same kind of culture, you know. Uh, people like to work together. We have a lot of group forming outside of work to do specific outing. On our side, we're just adding a, a layer of organization, you know, to all of this kind of nice goodwill. Our CSR activity is an illustration of that. And we have an amazing turnout for this kind of event. We are uh, supporting an organization here in Taiwan called the PAC, uh, which is a, a shelter for abandoned dogs. We have also the One Mountain, One Tree initiative, where we are for a full day of staff going to plant uh, trees. Nice outing uh, for all of us. We have the beach cleaning. Uh, so quite a lot of, uh, of nice initiative. Let's have a look at this. I mean, the CSR aspect, I think. I mean, banks in general, I mean... Y- you don't really have a product. I mean, I know you do, don't get me wrong, but, but there isn't a, a physical product in the way that an organization that sells shoes or something. So your product, in a sense, is service, right, which is always harder to quantify. It's harder to kind of sometimes to know what you do. There's an element of organization and process about banking, which is necessary. Creating this goodwill, driving this into an organization. So what you're doing is you're creating an atmosphere where your people are wanting to do good or they're being kind of shown what good is in a way, right? You're, allow, you're giving them an environment where they can do good and feel good about that. Indeed, indeed, Steve, but I would even say that for the banking industry as a whole, also in Taiwan for the last three to four years, more than CSR, ESG is fundamental into the role of, of a financiers being in the bank or in the asset management industry. The role of banks for me is, or at least of credit agricole, is to finance the real economy and the energy transition. The point for us is to finance job, finance real project, and energy transition. And in Taiwan, I was quite happy to see that the authorities took it quite seriously in order to motivate local banks to also embrace ESG financing. Much more needs to be done, but we are definitely on the right path. Trillions of dollars which are being needed in the next 10, 20, 30 years in order to change the paradigm of our economy. Currently, we are in a carbonized economy if we want to stay on this planet foreseeable future, we need to invest zillions of, of dollars and public money is not enough. You need private capital to be mobilized. We need banks to take into account ESG, CO2 emission into our financing project. And this is what's going to make the difference. So there is much more which needs to be done and with strong strategies in order to help our clients decarbonize their activity and by doing so, hopefully living in a more sustainable world. So I think that the world has come to a point, which I'm actually really excited by it. We're in a very interesting place in history now because governments are talking about ESG. Private organizations are talking about ESG. Um, Citizens are demanding this of their organizations. They're demanding accountability. And obviously NGOs have always been kind of uh, on, on this cutting edge. So I'm actually quite optimistic about the world because I think it feels like there's a general, you know, you're talking about leading an organization and encouraging people to go in a certain direction. But I think also the staff and the customers are pulling you in this direction. I mean, do you think this is fair? It's absolutely fair. It started 12 to 13 years ago in Europe with the European Investment Bank 
which with a few banks, uh, including Credit Agricole, did what we call the first green bond. All of this started on a best effort basis and has continued as such with banks taking commitment. But now you're mentioning the role of government. I think we need more regulation around this. I think that the government need to impose for industries and for banks much more capital, potentially some incentive to further finance the energy transition. On regulation, I have a liberal stance on this. Regulation is not there to arm or to stop a business, but in a context of ESG finance, it all started by a few banks trying to innovate and create product to encourage corporation, banks, government entities to finance environmental, societal project. Here, this goodwill and private initiative, I think, will benefit from a base game being set up by government, by global bodies, and potentially it could be positive regulation, i.e. incentive. We have every project we do, we need to put a cost of capital in order to finance this. Should we finance project which significantly reduce CO2, maybe we could consider that we get lighter charges to put at the central bank in order to do this kind of financing. But for me, some banks are very motivated to do this kind of job. Others are a tad less. So the agenda is so important that in order to push us higher from wherever base we are, I do consider that more regulation in ESG finance will be very welcome. I even think if I'm going to take this back to kind of leadership, which is what we talk about, if you talk about regulation, to me, regulation is really about the clarity of purpose, right? You as a leader, you need to have a vision. And we'll get into this maybe a little bit later on. But, you know, having a vision, the regulation is kind of like the vision. If it's like, you know what you're supposed to do, reward the activities, right? Reward the correct activities and you'll get the right result. I mean, that seems to be where you're coming from for your sort of regulatory approach. Often people think of regulation as control taking you, oh, we can't do that, you can't do that, you know, like a traditional old mum is, you know, slapping you on the butt kind of, you know, <laughs> can't do that, you can't do that. But actually what you're talking about is regulation as something that encourages the right behaviours. And to accelerate, because the bond market over a period of 12, 15 years uh, has moved from zero to 50% of its notional into ESG finance. It will take us five to ten more years to convert the global bond market into green. Let's accelerate. And for me, regulation is a mean to accelerate and win these five to ten years in order to, to answer the challenge of, of energy transition. Benjamin, I just wanted to kind of circle back a little bit and talk about you for a moment. What has brought you to where you, I mean, I know you're in Taiwan now, you're working for Credit Agricole, but what is kind of, you know, what started you on this path to get to be the incredible leader that I see in front of me today? You're not very good for me to stay humble. So that's the story of a French guy which has been living longer now outside of France than in the home country. I studied in the UK. Wales, right? You're in Wales, aren't you? Absolutely, go Wales in Cardiff and uh, was great. And one day I saw all of these guys in the student union, you know, starting to look at uh, investment banking website, big four consultancy uh, website as well. And I, I asked the guys, what are you doing? And these guys told me, hey, 
Next year, we need a job, so we need to apply to graduate programs. And I was completely ignorant of this because it was, despite me studying in the UK, it was not similar to what I was used to in France. And I started to apply to investment bank and the big four in uh, their graduate program. And I was lucky enough to, at the time, be taken in the programs of Deloitte, Mary Lynch, and Clenworth Benson. Clenworth Benson, having been the banks which answered me the fastest, I said yes to these guys. And I started in the UK in a very posh merchant bank uh, called Clenworth Benson, which then became Dresdner, Clenworth Benson. They were acquired by the Germans. Then they bought the Americans, Wasserstein Perella, so it became Dresdner, Kleinwort, Wasserstein. And then my American boss, 12 years after, and I was in London, left this bank to go to Credit Agricole, which at the time was called Calio. So I followed uh, my boss uh, into French bank Credit Agricole, and there's been a great run since then. So from 2000 to 2012, I've been in London. From 2008 to now at Credit Agricole, and 2008 to 12 London. And then one day, one of my boss said, hey, we need someone in Hong Kong. So in 2012, I left to go to Hong Kong. I was very happy in London. I've been ecstatic in Hong Kong, amazing place to be. And sometime just before COVID, again, one of my boss come and see me and say, hey, we need a new guy in Taipei. Are you interested? Yeah, for sure. Great. Amazing. So I left to Taipei just before COVID. Uh, now it has been two years that I've been around. I've done a lot of mentoring. I know you've been involved in mentoring programs. You're a big fan of learning and development. When I get involved in mentoring programs, you know, I have people in their kind of 20s who look at me and it, it seems to them that somehow I have a career that is, you know, amazing, that's kind of, and it's been planned. <laughs> you know, people think that, oh, wow, you've got where you're going because you've had this incredible plan from when you were 17 or something. I have a theory that there are very few people who plan as clearly as that. And you've just demonstrated to me that that's true. I've been a little bit candid in the way I presented it. I think you indeed create your own luck and there is karma. I've always been quite proactive and dynamic. I've always been open-minded. And I think as this is the image I'm portraying. And every time there was a little bit of an outside of the box kind of job, I've been considered for this kind of job because they knew I had the potential to grow further. But indeed, you create this kind of luck. And to you were talking about development, learning and development. This is the advice I'm giving to all of our young guys reach out. Don't stay in your little corner. Go speak to the boss when the boss is next to you. Have an idea. Think outside of the box. Be seen. And don't be, you know, like you're being educated in some traditional Asian culture. You know, the good guy who said nothing and we wait for direction. Show that you have initiative. This is so true. So I was not kind of belittling your achievements. I think you've done an amazing thing throughout your career. If I could characterize it, I think when I talk to people, I say, you've got to be in the room. You may not know 10 years ago that that's the room that you want to be in. But, you know, if you're there, as you say, you know, talk to the boss. If you see the boss walking down, hey, how you doing? Have a quick chat saying, oh, I've been, you know, thinking about this. And, and ask people questions, talk to them, be curious, network. I mean, network sounds terrible, but all really networking is, is just being open and curious walk up to somebody. I've never had anybody walk up to me at an event and say hi and think, what an idiot. 
you know, usually you have a conversation. Maybe after five minutes you think, what an idiot. <laughs> but initially, right, initially you're always going to welcome those advances. And you were mentioning that you're, you're mentoring. I think that, and I'm sorry, I don't want to make you feel older than you are, but with age, this is one of the privileges we have in our job and one of the most interesting elements of the job is to train the next gen, uh, pass whatever you learn, hopefully good <laughs> Uh, less than bad, and it's indeed one of the most interesting part of my job. I do appreciate, you know, when we have uh, younger people coming and saying, hi, we don't know each other. I know of you. Uh, can we discuss? Of course, with great pleasure. Right. People who've had a career or people who are in a career, right, all the people that I know are very happy to talk to somebody about. So, you know, go and ask a question. Don't reach out. This is what I, I think, and I, I'm asking for your opinion here. What I see is people writing to me and asking for a job? My first response is no. People write to me and say, I have questions about your industry. My ego is stroked. And I reach back to them and say, hey, let's get time for a cup of coffee. That, this has happened a couple of times where I've employed those people. It's indeed a smart way of doing it. You need to wrap it around, I would like to learn from what you've done. Can we discuss? I would like your advice. I'm receiving indeed quite a few of these youngsters which are looking for a job. So first, of course, I'm having a positive outlook on that. You know, people need to find a job and you need to be proactive about it. So that's one brony point. Two, it's a question of, of luck and circumstances. I will say that out of, the, out of 10 requests I will receive, one will work because I will be aware of a job in my company or in a company I'm close to or someone spoke over the weekend about difficulty into finding a kind of talent or staff. And it does work from time to time and it's quite nice when it works, actually. Let's move on to like looking at, there's a big terminology at the moment called future of work, right? There's a lot of books being written about future of work, but you've been in a career for some time. And again, you highlighted the fact that it's, you know, you came to Taiwan COVID time. This has been a big catalyst for change, obviously, but, but do you see work essentially changing over the last, let's say, 15 years? And what are those changes if they exist? No and yes. No, banking is one of the most regulated industries there is. And when you look at the trading floor 30 years ago or currently, Actually, there is very little differences. You have these traders with their gigantic screens and a lot of phones around them. Two, yes, everything is changing. When before we had traders trading on guts, now we have traders trading on algorithmic formula and guys which actually know how to code and understand, you know, the kind of logic behind all of the algorithms. So it's all changing uh, without changing. Of course, COVID, one positive about COVID is indeed on accelerating our new way of working. We had all of the technology, but we were all too conservative. And even in banking, which was not maybe the best industry to implement uh, this new way of working, we've done it in Taiwan. We were forced. And honestly, now we do it positively. I have, apart from my trading floor because of regulatory aspect, I have 70% uh, of my staff which are working from home two days a week. I have as well adopted flex office concepts. So now no one has a given seat. Two, 
in terms of leadership, leading by example, being the CEO or the chief operating officer. We both gave up our offices in order to be on the floor with our bankers and colleagues. So yeah, we have rooms next to our desk in order to have meetings when we need to isolate ourselves for confidential matter. But we are on the floor with the teams and it's working perfectly. And at some point, I had some arguments that Taiwanese society was more traditional and not ready to move on with this kind of Western concept. Let me be very impolite. Bullshit. It did work well. Um, I was helped as well, Steve. I need to tell you, we did a relocation. We used to be in a very old building and we moved into Taipei Nanshan Plaza, which is one of the new towers of, of Taipei. I've been to both your buildings and uh, the new one is very nice. <laughs> And this relocation and the time it took to relocate, so pretty much 18 months, also helped us to do a lot of preparation. We needed to help our staff, accompany our staff to the change. And I think the change man management element was very important. Two, we as managers have never been trained to manage hybrid fashion in working. And it's true that when you've had for 25 years all of your team around you Yeah, you don't know how to manage a team which is half at home, half at work. So we made a lot of investment and we had some consultant to help us, train us on how to manage hybrid team. And I think, you know, by taking the time and not forcing it on people, uh, that has been for us a recipe to success on adopting this new way of working. And how is you as a leader, let's come back to you personally, because I would think talking about how something is I mean, it, it feels like the right thing to do, right? And, and you're clearly you've bought into it. Personally, have you struggled at all with this process of changing to having people not at, you know, you walk outside and, you know, Mary's not at her desk, John's not at his desk. How do you, you know, I need you now. Where are you? You know, you know? I always like this concept of new way of working. Uh, I thought it is a sense of history. And somehow, as a manager, I'm very lucky to go through and experience this because when you look at it, it might be the most important revolution of the way of working in the next 50, 60 years. So I'm positive on it. Now, it's true that as a CEO, being in the office, having all of your team around you is definitely the easiest way to do. Uh, sorry, not the easiest, the laziest way. And I want our team to be at their best. I think there is moment where they are benefiting from being at home. They are doing work which are uh, much more thinking intensive, which is better suited to be at home. For me personally, I'll tell you something which I should not. I prefer to stay in the office. But again, for this value of leading by example, I take here and then, twice, three times a month, a day where I'm working from home in order not to give any stigma to our staff which are taking the two days work from home. And an interesting statistic, uh, when we started on this, I would say six, seven months ago, we had 80% of our population taking two days. We had the rest, 15% taking one day and 5% not taking any days. And after six months, I have 99% of my staff, which are now at two days work from home. And no, for now, I'm not seeing any increase in productivity 
at all in the qualitative element or interaction with staff and, and, and the time of answering. Yeah, before I just needed to, to, to shout across the floor for someone's attention and I got it in 15 seconds. Now I'm getting it in 30 seconds using Skype or one of our internal tools. So, okay, no issue whatsoever here. And also quantitatively in terms of revenues. No, we had had growth over the last few months and years since we've implemented uh, work from home. And I cannot tell you we would not have as better, you know, if we were in the office or worst. For me, it's completely neutral. I want to ask you about this leading by example. I think this is super important. I think a lot of leaders have what they say and what they do. Here's what I believe and here's what my company does. You immediately prompt me here on my start on the trading floor. I started in London and trading floor are amazing levelers. You have gigantic room. Uh, which are like football stadium, where you have three, four, five hundred people and you go from the analyst to the MD, which are all sitting from each other. And you have, for these four, five hundred people, ten offices only. So it's a very, very flat organization and very efficient organization. And I think that my leading by example uh, philosophy come from having started on the trading floor. There is a lot of transparency, you know. Uh, what you are, what you do is seen by everyone. And it's for me something which I believe in since uh, starting in this context of trading floor. And I've carried on, you know. Even now, or before when I was in Hong Kong, I was locked in an office on the side of the trading floor. I still believe, you know, I could have come to work at 8.30, but I still came at 7.30, 7.45, like every traders. Asking things to your staff to do, you need to be able and to show that you can do it to yourself. So I think that there's a kind of an old school of uh, leadership where, you know, staff are doing stuff and, uh, and the boss is on the golf course, <laughs> you know, and I, I just didn't, I don't think that cuts it anymore. And I don't think that people respect that. And I don't think they deliver. Right. And, I, and that's what I'm hearing from you. Right. Indeed. But here again, Steve. So speaking of golf. I did start in Taiwan because oh, wow. indeed I've uh, noticed that we have this tradition, which is not only Taiwanese, but uh, which have experience in, in Korea, in Hong Kong, of having senior executive playing golf. So it's part of my job to play. But now something which I've noticed as well is that people who tend to play are all male in their 50s, 60s and 70s. So we started something great and fun, which is called Women Power Golf, where all our young and not so young uh, female talent, which are client facing, are being initiated to golf because I want them to be able to be where the decisions are taken. And if the decisions in Taiwan are taken on the golf course, no problem, ladies, go on it, learn, uh, be good. And also I'm forcing my bankers, you know, to say, hey, you have colleagues now who play golf, female colleagues. You guys go together with your clients, and it's not just a male-only club of mm -hmm. the 60s years old, you know, uh, discussing. Two, something as well you need to know. I don't know if you play golf, but in Taiwan, it's terrible. You start at 6 o'clock. So you wake up at 5 o'clock, you play at 6, and then at 9.30, you're like a zombie at your desk. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's not that glamorous that it may sound. So I, I started as I arrived in Taiwan and I was 33 years old. I've been here for 23 years now. I had been on a golf course before, but 
once or twice, you know, not to, I started playing golf when I came here because it was so important to the, to the business culture. So I think there are elements of things that are, you know, having dinners with people or uh, things that seem social, but nonetheless are very important as part of business to build those relationships. So I, <laughs> I understand your golfing stories. I like the initiative though. What you've done is you've taken something traditional, which has a danger of ending up being a male ageist organization. And so there are certain people who are cut out, right, by the nature of the activity. Oh, it's golf. That's only for the, that group of people. What you've done is you've taken that and you've changed it and you've made it something that can be positive for the development of diversity, which I think is a really, really cool thing to do. Something so traditional that you've forced it to become a tool for diversity. And the one thing which goes the way of your initial question, I do think there is a wind of change in Taiwan. The new generation is fluent in English, has been working abroad. And if you bring these guys which are international back to an extremely traditional context, they will not stay. And brain drains that Taiwan is starting to experience, and we've seen the authorities here trying to counteract, you know, with this gold card and things like that, uh, will be a real issue. And Taiwan is a smart place. They will change. They will adapt because going into more traditional for guys with known different culture might be very difficult. Having said this, we as foreign company are benefiting from that because these young talent, I think, strive better working in foreign companies. And indeed, for us in our recruitment policy, we always go for guys which have, you know, one or two years abroad, which have shown that they can, you know, handle two culture. It's, it's indeed a key element. So I think you just raised a very, very important point. When you talk about people going overseas, traditionally, there was a view in Asia that you went overseas to improve yourself because overseas was better. And you come back to your parents right. when they're at the age. But I'm not too sure anymore that right. the Taiwanese will abide by this rule. And right. a lot of young talents, they will stay in Australia, they will stay in the US, they will stay in the UK. Right. My second point about this is, and I'm asking your opinion about this, you know, as, as a leader. I think that the improvement is not necessarily going somewhere else that is better. The improvement is going somewhere else that is different. I think the difference is what, you know, When I came into Asia, it taught me about things like personal space. You know, I grew up, I'm from Scotland, but I grew up in Australia. The person next to me was three and a half meters away. <laughs> you know, there was always a lot of space. I, I turn up in uh, Indonesia for 30 something years ago. You know, they're touching me, you know, in the street. Like everybody's kind of, and you learn about things. You learn change. You learn that things are not the way you grew up, the way you grew up. And the minute you accept change, I think you start to grow. And this is why you're still in Asia. And this is why I'm still abroad, not in France. Every morning, I love to have this different set of culture and references that I have being abroad. When I was in London for 12 years, what a pleasure on my scooter to drive past Buckingham Palace was always exciting. Here, you know, seeing this Chinese and Taiwanese culture that you have in the street is for me extremely exciting, something which my Taiwanese colleague will not notice. For me, I will find it absolutely beautiful. And indeed, it's part for me of the spice of being abroad and why I'm happy to be in uh, Taipei today. And that takes us nicely into something kind of uh, beyond work, passions beyond work, work-life balance. 
Now, obviously, as a CEO, it's very hard to have, you know, you've got to be available pretty much 24 hours a day if you're required. But you must have passions and things that keep you grounded, that keep you interested in life. What do you do outside of your work that, you know, obviously you played a bit of golf now. <laughs> you've done that. But what, what else, is, you know, what kind of makes Benjamin Benjamin? The French Chamber in Taiwan is taking a bit of my time. Uh, but we have a great team at the Chamber, a great board as well. So there is a little bit of social element and I like to be around these people, which is great. Uh, we are also creating second French school in Taiwan, which is called LIFT, Lycée uh, International Français de Taipei, which is here to complement TES and offering Uh, French, Chinese, and English trilingual education. And this school, which opened in September, has currently 40 students. For next year, we are planning into 70 to 80 students. So that's great. I'm helping on the finance and legal side on this project. And now you're going to think the guy is only like to work, work, work. No, I also love to collect. Little bit crazy about collecting. And my latest frenzy on collection is decanters. And I know that with your day-to-day job, this is something and Scottish roots will relate to you. There is a French brand which was created 500 years ago called Baccarat. They are makers of crystal. And these guys, over this uh, five, six hundred years run, have created 1,000 different glass and decanter collection. And so far, I've got 200 of them. So there is still quite a lot to go. I still have 800 decanters uh, which were created too. There is some which are now part of museum because decanters which were created five, four, three hundred years ago are kind of difficult to find and too, too expensive for my means. But still, I'm, uh, I might stop this collection when I will be around 400 uh, decanters. Wow. So you've got to have passions beyond work, right? I mean, even if it's uh, even if it's more work in a sense, right? You build projects, you get things done, things that may have meaning to you beyond that. Something which I think is key is somehow to create flexibility because as you can imagine, time consumed on all of these activities is quite big. I don't know how many hours I do at work, but I will imagine it's a minimum of 12. During the weekend, I might give three, four hours as well on urgency or project too. There is a French chamber, there is a school, there is then my personal life. So I think something which is key is to be, not create boundaries. It's to be able to mix a bit of both. As leaders, you're expecting to give an output. You're being judged, you have KPIs, but you know, you should not put pressure to compartmentalize. And for me, this is a key element. If I need to leave during the day for a board of the French chamber or the French school, no problem whatsoever. If I need to go out with a client for work on a Saturday, on a Sunday, to have a lunch, to play golf, no problem whatsoever. If I need to dedicate time to a recruitment fair, help NTU on project over the weekend, no problem. But it needs, you know, I don't like to compartmentalize because here this is where you're creating, I think, too much pressure on the system. And this is somehow I'm, how I'm managing, you know, to take all of this commitment with a smile. I was lucky enough to have some time with the global CEO of Nestle. Uh, it was a small group of people at IMD and I was, I was studying there at the time. And, you know, he was asked this question about work-life balance and he just kind of smiled. And he said, there is no such thing. 
This was his approach. There is no such thing as work-life balance. I said, everything I do is my life. I tend to agree with this, absolutely. And you need to make sure that you're fulfilled with, with this. It's different for everyone. Two, you need to make sure you don't give the image of being a worker colleague because somehow this is not at all the, the truth. But you need to enjoy what you're doing. I had someone the other day came to me and they were a, a fairly new member of staff. They were applying for an hour and a half off because they needed to do something. My response, I kind of chuckled a little bit and said, I, I'm not going to sign this. Just, just go. You have to leave at five o'clock. I mean, you know, just go. Indeed. That's the point. We have objective, team objective. Um, of course, we need to make sure you don't slag off. But uh, yeah, I mean, a, a staff doing a private stuff because family is around in Taipei, a family which live in Kaohsiung, and the staff taking an additional one hour for, for lunch. I don't care, no one should care, and it should not even care. Uh, then uh, the commitment of the staff, however, is the key point. And if that keeps the staff more committed, perfect. Right. So I'm hearing from you that I think you're more about the outcome than you are about the process, in a sense. Indeed. Having said this, I'm being helped because working in finance, we are extremely well organized and regulated. So somehow the process is part, are part of the DNA. There are things that you must do as milestones, perhaps, on the way to an outcome. It's not just kind of like, hey, make me $8 million this year and uh, walk away for 12 months. <laughs> if, if, if you can do that, Steve, I recruit you. <laughs> I'll give my CV later. But um, I, I just want to, we're going to have to finish up. I'm really enjoying the conversation. Are there any kind of moments in this varied career that you've had? You know, you've, been, you've lived in multiple places, you've experienced different things. Are there any kind of moments that have changed you or made you think like, you know, those kind of aha moments, you know, where you suddenly realize something that maybe, maybe you weren't good at and maybe you realize what you should have been doing all along, or maybe you realize kind of this is who I am or this is what I want to do or, you know, is there anything that's really kind of been a moment in your career? One thing which I've learned is strategy, strategy, strategy. Every time you try to be tactical, every time there is an easy path on an easy road, it's a road to nowhere, it's a road to failure, and always stick to strategy. And I'm always trying to take time to, to have the helicopter view on whatever we take. One, because it's my job, but you know, in the day-to-day haste of everything we do, uh, things go fast. I'm always trying to step back in order to make sure, you know, we are not wasting time and resources on, on, on things. But in, indeed, always going back to strategies is one of the elements. So I know you're asking me for one moment. It's not one. It's more uh, a, a feeling uh, which I have. But it feels like a realization, right? You've come to a realization by, and, and this has happened to me as well. I mean, I, you know, you fail a little bit. You don't fail a lot. But you fa- and you're kind of like, why, why did that not work out quite how I expected? And you think, well, we lost sight of it, right? I feel like you're telling me that you, you know, at some point you've lost sight of an overall strategy. You've acted tactically, which made sense because someone came to you and said, well, we need to give 2% discount or, or whatever it was, you know. <laughs> so you responded. But was it part of your overall strategy? If the answer is no, then you shouldn't have done it, right? I mean, I, I feel... I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I feel that's a little bit of what you're trying to tell me. Absolutely. And, and one additional thing, which by now I'm convinced, uh, if I have 100 projects, I prefer us to make 1% improvement on all projects 
than uh, having one project 100 and the rest completely neglected. As organization, but also as, as individual and professional, we need to move forward, move ahead, make progress. And here you need to, to wake up and, and, and change something, you know, if you're on a standstill. So Benjamin, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. I've heard a lot of really, really cool things about leadership. I've heard, I mean, I've heard this idea of trying to change the paradigm. You know, this is one of the really interesting things I've heard from you is like, if there's something that's traditional and it's been in place, well, change it. Bring in other people to be involved in that. Make it something about diversity instead of exclusion, right? Bring other people to be involved and get other inputs. But the really the strongest thing I've heard from you over this whole thing is really this two, two kind of things. Be open to opportunity, which I think is a really, really nice idea. And that's your career has developed very, very well um, by being open to opportunity. You're clearly an outgoing, friendly person. Um, and I think, you know, being in the room and talking to people and, uh, taking advice, but also, you know, being, being open and curious. Um, but the last thing, and one of the most strategically important things, and the word, is, the word itself is in there, is, is remember the strategy, right? Remember the vision. Don't respond. Don't be tactical. Stick to your guns, right? Be strategic about it. You said it better than me. I mean, there's so much in what you've been saying over the last few minutes that we could go on for hours. I want to bring it back for a second and just kind of give a little bit of a summary of what I've heard from you. You talk about the organization being the staff. The staff make the organization. I think you are banking, you talk about banking being a people business. And often people forget that. But I think we have to remember, that, you know, at the core of everything, there are people. You go to an organization, there are still people involved in that organization. We need to develop those people. You talked about this leadership getting energy from the staff and from the organization. So it's not really this kind of one way, you know, some leader riding into battle and everybody follows them in, but everybody kind of has to work together. And you as a leader get your energy from the staff in your organization. You, you talked a little bit about building an organization of goodwill. You mentioned CSR and you mentioned the projects that kind of bring people together. And more than doing good even, it's all about bringing the people together for a common cause that maybe isn't as connected with their daily grind. You know, you're building teams in that way. You talked about as an organization that what you want to do and what you believe the organization should do is to, is to foster positive clients and businesses that are doing things that are helping to affect the change that you believe and your organization believes is essential for the world to survive. You talked also a little bit about government having a strong role to play, right? Regulations. I mean, often bankers will tell me that they don't want regulations, but uh, <laughs> what you're telling me is that in, in areas you believe that there needs to be regulation in order to help people do the right thing. And I think I agree with you there. I think you're very considerate for your audience to retranslate in a great English accent uh, all of what I've said. So thank you so much, Steve, for that. Benjamin Lamberg, this has been uh, an amazing conversation. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Steve. You can listen to this podcast live on the fourth Monday of every month on ICRT and after that on the ICRT website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Leadership Matters by Stephen Parker. You can also check out my social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Look for my tagline, Leader Matters. We'll see you next time.